Here's Fred Van Vliet, front court, 10 seconds to go. Down one, they go to Kawhi with seven and half court, looks at the clock, drives Thompson, double team, finds Van Vliet with two, into the corner, Lowry for the championship, no! It hits the side of the backboard, the game is over, the Golden State Warriors are extending this final series back to a game six in Oakland. There will be a game six. As the Warriors' dreams of a three-peat are still alive, Tanner Hoops with you in the sports pen. Glad to have you along as always. A lot to break down this Tuesday afternoon. We're going to start on the hardwood. We'll switch into a little baseball later. But last night, the Golden State Warriors may have just flipped the narrative. They came into this series as the team that we all wanted to see lose. We wanted this team's dynasty to end. And if not winning three titles in a row means they're not a dynasty anymore, then we're all for that. But then last night, something seemed to change. A banged-up Warrior team took the floor. A team that's being pieced together. Looney, Boogie, especially Durant. All of them barely healthy, limping out there on the floor trying to do their thing, desperately clinging for life in these finals. Then Durant gets hurt. His return to the floor for the first time in 32 days he gets hurt. A cheer erupts from the home crowd Toronto fans. They wave him off the floor. And at that moment, the narrative started to shift. The Warriors didn't become the team that's perennially in the finals we want to see lose. The Warriors became the darling 3-1 underdogs. The team going up against adversity, fighting through injury. And Toronto turned themselves into the villain. And to the Raptors' credit, their players calmed those fans down. They put a stop to the cheering when Durant was injured. Still, not a good look for Toronto fans. At that moment, the narrative started to shift, and the Warriors became the team that many of us were rooting for. Any other team being down 3-1, losing their best player to injury, having the fans cheer for an injury, any other team would automatically become the darling of that series. But I think there were a lot of us that were cheering for Golden State at the end of last night's Game 5. Partly because I want to see more basketball. A 106-105 win for Golden State. Steph had 31 to lead the Dubs. They end the game on a 9-2 run. Golden State dominated for most of that game. They dominated for about three and a half quarters. And then Toronto went on their run. Toronto took a lead late. Went up by as many as six with two and a half minutes to play. And then Nick Nurse seemed to shoot himself in the foot. Let me tell you why. I love Nick Nurse. He's a fellow Iowan. He's a great coach. What he's done this season, it speaks for itself. But in the final three minutes of last night's Game 5, he looked every bit like the rookie coach who'd never been to a finals before. With 2.36 to play, the Raptors are up 103-97. to They just scored 10 straight points. Nothing has fallen for Golden State. They just missed a three-pointer. Toronto grabs a defensive rebound. Nick Nurse calls a timeout. The building was just shaking. Canada was going crazy. All the momentum in the world was on Toronto's side. They were going to win their first title. And then Nick Nurse calls a timeout. Now, you can make the argument Kawhi was absolutely gassed. He had nothing left in the tank. And you're right, he didn't. But you don't kill your own momentum with a timeout especially against a team like the Warriors, because they're well-coached too. Steve Kerr doesn't get enough credit for the job he does as a coach, for the skill set that he has. It's all attributed to the players that he has. 
From that point on, the Raptors were outscored 9-2. They lose the game 106-105. to Again, I love Nick Nurse. I think he's done a wonderful job as a head coach. But the majority of that loss last night, I'm pinning on him. So Golden State is forcing Game 6. They could win at Oracle. They may not have Kevin Durant, Kevon Looney. Who knows who else is going to get hurt in that time. They are forcing a Game 6 at home. It's entirely possible we could see a Game 7 at Scotiabank Arena. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a doctor. I have no medical training. I don't think we're going to see Kevin Durant for the rest of this series. Looked like he injured his Achilles. They diagnosed it as a lower left leg injury. But I tell you what, a max of two games for a championship, of which he already has two, I don't think Kevin Durant is going to take the floor again. Even if he's healthy and cleared to play, would you dare take the floor if you were Kevin Durant? Yes, he wants the validation from winning a championship where he can prove he was the reason why, which he would do if he leads the Warriors to a comeback and win it in seven games. But what about down the line? This is a contract year for Kevin Durant. He's 32 years old. He's coming off of an injury that's very hard to come back from, let alone play better. Why risk it? Wait for a team to give you that super max in a little less than a month from now. Come back next season and get your validation by leading them to a title. I don't know if the Raptors so much as lost Game 5 last night as the Knicks, the Clippers, the Nets, any of the teams that are all in on Kevin Durant this offseason. When free agency opens up on July 1st, teams are going to be taking a chance on Durant. I don't think he's going to be there on July 2nd. But do you want to give somebody a long-term deal with the injuries that he sustained in these playoffs? Ideally for Durant, he wants to find a team that's desperate enough and has the money that they'll give him a supermax long-term deal because we don't know what we're going to get from Durant next time he takes the floor. Again, this is a hard injury to come back from, especially when you're on the wrong side of 30. But despite all that, will a team like the Knicks go all in and give him a supermax because of the possibility that he will be the same old Kevin Durant? Oh yeah, the Knicks will. Clippers might, the Nets might, someone else might. Kevin Durant is like the ultimate mystery box right now. You have an all-world talent, but is he going to be the same? Is he still going to be effective after a gruesome injury? You have to sign him long-term and find out. Because he's not going to sign on a one-year deal unless it's with Golden State. If he wants to come back one more year, really try to prove his validation by leading Golden State to a title, he could. He could do it on a one-year deal. But there's no other team in the league. None of the other 29 are going to sign Kevin Durant to a one-year deal. And I tell you what, that opens another door. One that a lot of people aren't talking about. And that's what the Warriors are going to do with Boogie Cousins. Think back to last summer. Boogie took a massive pay cut to come to the Warriors on a one-year deal. Why? Because he wanted to be an NBA champion. Because he wanted to win his ring. When Boogie got hurt, back in February I think it was... We all thought it was season-ending, and we were speculating, does this mean Boogie is going to re-sign in the offseason? He's on an expiring contract, came here for just one year only to win a championship. Even if the Warriors win the title this year, he's not going to feel like he earned that ring. Does that mean he's going to re-sign this offseason? Now, Boogie's banged up, I'll give him that. But as tough as the last three minutes were last night for Nick Nurse... 
they might have been even worse for Boogie Cousins. So if the Warriors aren't able to win the next two, does Boogie Cousins re-sign? He took that massive pay cut just so he could come to Golden State for a year and win his championship. What if they don't get it? They're one game away from not doing so. What if Boogie doesn't get that ring? Does he come back next year? I think it's entirely possible, but will the Warriors want to re-sign him? Last night didn't help his case. I know he's playing through injury, and if he's willing to take a pay cut for a second straight year, and I'm talking a massive pay cut like he did this season, then sure, the Warriors will be open to re-signing him. But for the caliber player that he is, he can make a lot more elsewhere. And I tell you what, I love free agency season in the NBA. I believe that Kawhi Leonard has personally put Anthony Davis back in play for the Boston Celtics. They're going to start calling this the Toronto model. Toronto took a huge risk this offseason, bringing in Kawhi Leonard on a one-year deal. A great talent. We didn't know if he was that much better than DeMar DeRozan when he entered this season. We all forgot how good Kawhi really was when he played only nine games last year. Now he's one win away from bringing Toronto their first ever championship. And as of last night with Durant's injury, he is officially the most sought-after free agent in this offseason. So even if he doesn't resign, is that a good model? Bringing a player in as a rental, a one-year deal to win a championship? Very rarely does that work out. I don't think it's a good model. But it did work out for Toronto. Broken clock is right twice a day. But I do believe that opens the door for other teams to try and implement the Toronto model themselves. And I believe that means that Danny Ainge is going to put a massive offer on the table to try and get Anthony Davis from the Pelicans. Now Boston's at a greater risk probably than anybody else who would trade for Davis. Because that means you're going to lose Jason Tatum. You're probably going to lose somebody else. You might lose Jalen Brown or Marcus Smart. You have no idea what Kyrie Irving is going to do. In all likelihood, he's probably going to be gone. Anthony Davis has already hinted that he wouldn't re-sign if Boston traded for him, that he'd only be there for a year. So if Boston does get Anthony Davis, they give up Tatum, maybe somebody else, they lose Kyrie Irving in free agency, they don't win a championship next year, then Anthony Davis walks, you don't have Kyrie, you don't have Tatum, you lose a lot of your key pieces you build around. What the Celtics could try and do is what the Oklahoma City Thunder did, and that's bring in a guy like Paul George on a one-year deal. And you make it like a one-year recruiting pitch. Say, this is what we're building. We're doing something special here. Fall in love with this team, with this culture, with this city. And Paul George did. It was a success. Paul George signed a long-term deal with Oklahoma City, turned down the Lakers to do so. Could the Celtics do the same thing with Anthony Davis? It's a big risk. But Boston's going to need one of those key pieces. Philadelphia's another team that could go all in for a one-year supply of Anthony Davis. That's where Ben Simmons could come into play. Some people still believe the Embiid-Simmons process can still be trusted. I'm not one of those people. I think you've got to move on from Simmons, especially if Anthony Davis is out there. And it's not going to be a one-for-one. One. You're probably going to have to give up a few other role players. J.J. Redick might be in that package. But how bad do you want that title? And keep in mind, we still have the draft a week before this free agency period hits. All this could change depending who's drafted where. 
I love this time of the year. Still got a couple of basketball games left, hopefully. At least one, one more day of hockey, and then free agency to look forward to. Let's take our first time out. We'll break down the College World Series field next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. The College World Series will throw the first pitch from Omaha, Nebraska, TD Ameritrade Park on Saturday And for the first time since 1984, the field of eight will include the Michigan Wolverines. Michigan is one of the last eight standing after being one of the last four into the NCAA tournament. They got an at-large bid. Michigan and Florida State were both among the final four in the field of 64. Duke was another one. Duke and TCU were the other two teams in that group. And Duke was one win away from joining Florida State and Michigan in the College World Series. So now let's take a look at what we're looking forward to in Omaha. Michigan is going to play the first game of the tournament. On Michigan's side of the bracket, Texas Tech, Arkansas, and the aforementioned Florida State Seminoles. Michigan comes in at 46-20. They will play Texas Tech, 44-18. That game will be carried on ESPN TV. It's set for a 2 o'clock first pitch for those of us in the Eastern Time Zone, 1 o'clock local time. Arkansas plays Florida State later that night. The winners play Monday night at 7. The losers play an elimination game Monday afternoon at 2. So before we break down the teams in Michigan's half of the bracket, let's take a look at the other side. You have Vanderbilt, who's now the highest remaining national seed. They come in at 54-11. and They're my pick to win the tournament. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Louisville, 46-19. and That will be Vandy's opponent in the first round. That game Sunday at 2. Mississippi State takes on Auburn in the other half. Mississippi State, 51-13. and Auburn, 38-26. and Those two teams will play Sunday evening at 7.30. Vanderbilt is my pick to win the College World Series this year. They just set a record with 13 draft picks in the MLB draft last week. 13 players from one team got selected in a single draft in a three-day span. And none of them were Kumar Rooker, who threw a 19-strikeout no-hitter on Saturday. Vanderbilt is absolutely loaded, but as we've seen, the most loaded team, the most talented team doesn't always win. That's going to be one of the biggest storylines to keep an eye on. That's why I think Vanderbilt would be the team I'd put money on. I'm not putting money on this, full disclosure. But if I were, Vandy would probably be the team I'd do so with. Maybe the other biggest headline comes out of Tallahassee. The Florida State Seminoles are heading to the College World Series for the 18th time under head coach Mike Martin. Martin's in his 40th and recently announced final season. He is the sport's all-time winningest head coach. He's reached the NCAA championship twice, but he's never won it. Can this be the year, his final year, can the sport's all-time winningest head coach get that first title? If you listen to Mike Martin's interviews, and I encourage you to do so, look him up on YouTube. I mean, he's a guy that you just can't help but love. Just listen to him. He's been there 40 years. The players that he's developed... It's unmatched by anybody in college baseball. The only thing he's missing is that championship. His team snuck in this year. They didn't know on Selection Day if they were going to make it or not. They got in as one of the final four teams. They said all we need just to get in, just hear our name called, and we can get two or three guys going, we'll be all right. 
They don't just have two or three guys going. They've got all nine bats going in this tournament. All nine bats have been firing on all cylinders. Florida State is one of the hottest teams entering this tournament. The record might be deceiving. The numbers might be deceiving. Still 20 games over 500, but their best baseball has been played during this tournament, during this postseason. That's why they're going to be a dangerous team. How about the coaching matchup in the second game of the tournament, Saturday night at 7? Mike Martin's squad going up against Arkansas. Dave Van Horn, the defending national runner-ups. They should have won the title last year. A drop pop-up in foul territory led to Oregon State's comeback and eventual victory. I tell you what, if we're talking about teams who have a shot to run the table this weekend, maybe the hottest team coming into this tournament. I'd say they're probably the hottest team, the Mississippi State Bulldogs. They're back. They're no strangers to the College World Series, but this is the first time they've done so under head coach Chris Lamontis. His first year as head coach, he's got the Bulldogs in the College World Series. They've won 51 games this year. They have not lost in this postseason. They're firing on all cylinders right now. The Bulldogs are not a team that you want to run into. Let me tell you why the Michigan Wolverines should feel confident going into the College World Series. They just beat the top team in the country. UCLA was overwhelmingly the best team throughout the course of this college baseball season. Michigan went to their place and they beat them. They have a pitching rotation that's highlighted by two of the top 80 picks in this year's draft. They've got the Big Ten Player of the Year in Jordan Brewer. And I don't need to tell you, in the college baseball world, the Big Ten does not command a lot of respect. But Jordan Brewer is the real deal. But you know what? The biggest reason why I think Michigan has a shot to win this tournament, I do. I do think they have a shot to win this tournament. The biggest reason why is because of their head coach. Because of Eric Bakich, someone I have tremendous respect for. Rewind two years ago, the last time Michigan made the NCAA tournament. Bakich was 39 years old. He'd been at Michigan five years. He brought that program up, and he was the leading candidate for the vacant South Carolina job. Carolina with a great baseball program, and they're at a much better conference, probably the best baseball conference in the country. People thought Bakich was gone, because that's how it is. Big Ten schools are not schools you want to stay long-term, at least not in the baseball world. They're a stepping stone job. But Bakich surprised everybody and posted on Twitter that he was staying and he ended his tweet with, those who stay will be champions. Famous Coach Bo quote, well, look where they are now. They were a three seed in the Big Ten tournament. They were a three seed in the regional tournament. They're going to be one of the biggest underdogs going into this weekend. But don't tell them that. Eric Bakich has done an unbelievable job in Ann Arbor, and he's just 41 years old. He loves the school. He bleeds maize and blue. He's going to be sticking around there for a while. Look for Michigan baseball to have continued success for many years to come. They'll get a tough test in this first round. They have a Texas Tech team that's no stranger to deep NCAA tournament runs. They boast the Big 12 Player of the Year this year. Josh Young, drafted 8th overall by the Rangers last week. How about some players to watch this weekend? Young will obviously be one. The top hitter in this tournament is Austin Martin. Sophomore utility player out of Vanderbilt hitting 414 this year. 92 hits in 222 at-bats. He is the top bat of anybody in this tournament. But how about if you need a guy who's going to get you deep into account, who's going to work a pitcher, who's going to give you a good chance to get on base when it's all said and done? 
Drew Mendoza, infielder out of Florida State, he's probably the guy to watch for in that category. Mendoza is third in the country, first out of anyone in this tournament, but third overall in the country with 64 walks drawn in 57 games. Don't get me wrong, he can hit the ball, but he doesn't always need to. He finds ways on base. How about players to watch with extra base power? Out of the tournament field, Arkansas junior outfielder Dominic Fletcher leads away with 22 doubles. He did so in 58 games. The dude's got extra base pop. Tournament leader in triples? Texas Tech utility player Dylan Noose. He's got six on the year. He's played 55 games. And of course, home runs. J.J. Blade, junior outfielder from Vanderbilt, fourth overall pick in this year's draft, selected by Miami, Leads the entire country, not just the tournament field. He led the country this year with 26 dingers in 59 games. How about base running? Gabe Holt, a sophomore from Texas Tech, has stolen 27 bags this year. He's been caught three times. That is the best percentage of anybody in this tournament. Total hits, Mississippi State's Jake Magnum was second overall in the country this year. 97 in 267 at-bats. And I tell you what, I love this. I love how the NCAA is able to calculate contact hitting. Who is the toughest guy to strike out in this tournament? That title also belongs to Jake Magnum. Based on the NCAA's algorithm, Magnum was the 22nd hardest player in the entire country to strike out this season. So with that, let's take a look at pitchers to watch out for in this tournament. The tournament leader in ERA, Ethan Small, with an ERA of 180. If that name sounds familiar, we talked about him last week. The Brewers selected him 28th overall this year. SEC Pitcher of the Year out of Mississippi State. Small also leads the tournament field in strikeouts per nine innings with 15. That was second best in the country, only to Noah Song out of Navy. How about fewest hits allowed per nine innings? Once again, it's Ethan Small. 4.8 hits per nine innings. So can we all agree that Ethan Small, Brewer draft pick in the first round this year, is the best pitcher in the tournament field? Sorry, Auburn. They've got the worst record in the tournament field at 38-26, and and very likely they're going to see Small in the first round. Before we hit the break, let's give you some team statistics, some team leaders out of this tournament field. In batting average, Vanderbilt has the top average out of anyone in the tournament at 319. Mississippi State right behind them at 316. On base percentage, Vanderbilt again, 417. Slugging percentage, 521. You start to see why I picked Vanderbilt to win this thing. Here's a category Vanderbilt's not leading the field in. Doubles. Mississippi State with 147. Vanderbilt with 143, so they're right behind them. Triples, Texas Tech leading the way with 20 home runs. Vanderbilt again. They were one of the best home run hitting teams in the country this year. 82 round trippers. That was seventh overall. Stolen bases, though. Louisville with 97. I tell you what, if this comes into play, none of these teams were top 20 nationally. And Louisville, while they stole 97 bases, they were caught 25 times, so they weren't necessarily efficient. I don't know how much it's going to factor into this tournament, but don't expect the steal sign to be given frequently. Let's turn to pitching. Team ERA, the Michigan Wolverines at 349 have the best ERA of any team in the field. Total strikeouts, Mississippi State with 636. Ethan Small had a lot to do with that. Hits allowed per nine. This actually belongs to the Louisville Cardinals. They were fourth nationally in the category. Total shutouts. I said that Auburn has the worst record in the tournament field, and they do. 
They have just 38 wins entering the tournament, but seven of those came via the shutout. That is fourth best in the country. And then fielding percentage. Michigan is up there. Michigan's top 20, but Vanderbilt is tied for second in the country with a 982 fielding percentage. That's a small capsule preview of this weekend's College World Series. It'll run from the 15th until the 26th at TD Ameritrade in Omaha. Wolverines kick off the tournament Saturday at 2. The entire tournament can be watched right here on the ESPN family of networks. Game 2 features Arkansas and Florida State. That game is set for a 7 o'clock first pitch. I tell you what, we owe you another timeout. Women's World Cup is going on over in Paris. We'll take a look at that next in the Sports Pen and ESPN UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along just across the bottom of the hour on this Tuesday afternoon. We've got World Cup soccer to talk about. We've got a big poppy update coming. We've got some baseball to break down. But first, your Sports Center update. The Memphis Grizzlies have hired Bucks assistant coach Taylor Jenkins as their new head coach. The Minnesota Vikings agree to a four year, $36 million contract extension with veteran tight end Kyle Rudolph. And finally, Aaron Rodgers looks like he's made up with Cal. A-Rodge has gifted a seven-figure donation to his alma mater that will be used to renovate the locker room and create the Aaron Rodgers football scholarship. That is your Sports Center update. Once again, glad to have you along here on the Sports Pen. Well, we're going to get to some World Cup soccer because the U.S. is underway. Our first game of this tournament trying to defend our title. But first, an update on Big Poppy. David Ortiz tragically shot in the Dominican Republic on Sunday night. He was flown to Boston on Monday for further treatment. He is resting comfortably. He's out of surgery. And the reports say he flashed, quote, that smile. That classic Big Poppy smile we've all come to know and cherish. Big Poppy's going to be all right. Again, keep the Ortizes in your thoughts and prayers, but good to hear that things are turning out for Big Poppy. Well, I tell you what, before we get into some soccer talk, we're going to go full circle. We're going to start with some baseball. Technically, we did with Big Poppy. We're going to continue with baseball into the stat of the day, then soccer, back to baseball, and then softball. i got a guest join me in about 15 minutes, but for now, your stat of the day. Last night, the Phillies and Diamondbacks combined to hit an MLB single-game record 13 home runs. A 13-8 win for Arizona last night. 13 home runs between the two. That's a single-game record. It fully encapsulates what baseball has become. Gerard Dyson, Kettle Marte, David Peralta, John Segura, Eduardo Escobar, Alex Avila, Scott Kingery, Eduardo Escobar again, Idiermo Vargas, Scott Kingery again, Idiermo Vargas again, Reese Hoskins, and finally Jay Bruce. They went homer happy last night at Citizens Bank Park in Philly. Well, I tell you what, the Women's World Cup kicked off last week over in Paris. The U.S. had to wait until today to take the field. But I tell you what, let's give you an update on what we can. We can give you the group standings as they are right now. France and Norway each won their tournament opener. They lead Group A, each with three points. Nigeria and Korea, each with one loss, still pointless. Over in Group B, you've got Spain and Germany, each winners in their first match. They both have three points. China and South Africa, both 0-1. Group C, Brazil and Italy on top, each of them with three points. That's going to be a fun matchup when those two meet up, always is. Australia and 
and Jamaica. Still pointless looking for their first win. Group D, England is on top. They have three points. Argentina and Japan tied. They each get one. Scotland 0-1. Still looking for their first point. Over in Group E, you know Canada is one of the tournament favorites going into it. They have three points. They are tied atop the leaderboard with the Netherlands, Cameroon, and New Zealand in the bottom portion of that group. And finally, in Group F, we don't have any points. Nothing yet. I tell you what, when you look at this tournament, you step back and take a look at it from an overview perspective. It should be the U.S.'s to lose. You've got countries like Japan, like Germany, like Canada. They're all going to make their runs. But right now, the U.S. has shown that they run the world in women's soccer. And they've got a good enough team back. It belongs to the U.S. unless someone says so. Second lap of group stage play continues tomorrow. Nigeria takes on Korea at 9 a.m. Then at 12, Germany will battle Spain. And France and Norway get it going at 3 o'clock. Yeah, I tell you what, let's check in with Major League Baseball. Let's see what's on tap for this evening. The Yankees and Mets are in progress. They're playing a doubleheader after they were rained out last night. Other games coming up this evening. 7.05 start for Toronto at Baltimore. It's Trent Thornton battling John Means. 7.05 start for Game 2 of the Yankees-Mets doubleheader, Jason Vargas and James Paxton. Another 7.05 start, the Diamondbacks and Phillies. We'll see if they can keep the ball in the ballpark this time. John DePlantier will take on Jake Arrieta. 7.10 start for the Reds and the Indians. Interstate play, Luis Castillo is opposed by Trevor Bauer. 7.10 for the A's and the Rays, Mike Fires and Ryan Stanek. Another 7-10 start as the Rangers visit Boston. Ariel Gerudo goes up against Darwin's own Hernandez. 7-10 start for the Cardinals and Marlins. Dakota Hudson is opposed by Eliza Hernandez. Then at 7-20, the Pirates take on the Braves. Chris Archer battles Mike Fultonevic. 8-10 start for the Mariners at Minnesota. Mike Leake goes against Martin Perez. Another 8-10 game. The White Sox welcome the Nationals, Patrick Corbin and Manuel Banuelos. At 8-10, the Brewers visit Houston. That should be a fun series. Freddie Peralta against Brad Peacock. 8-15, the Tigers visit the Royals. Keep in mind, two of these three games will be played at Kauffman Stadium. The third will be Thursday at TD Ameritrade in Omaha to kick off the College World Series. Tonight, Spencer Turnbull takes on Jacob Junis. 8.40 start for the Cubs and Rockies in Denver. It is Jose Quintana battling Peter Lambert. 9.45, the Padres take on the Giants. Chris Paddock takes on Tyler Beattie. And rounding out the night, a 10.07 start. Dodgers with a short trip across town to visit the Angels. Kenta Maeda is opposed by Felix Pena. Angels are going for a sweep in that one. Angels are starting to turn it on. Mike Trout is figuring things out. Tommy LaStella being the surprise of the baseball world, at least at second base. Well, I tell you what, I love to look at standings no matter how early it is in a season. We're not even at the halfway point yet, but let's look at the standings. Over in the American League, if the playoffs started today, Minnesota and Houston would vie for the top seed. They both are tied in terms of winning percentage at 672. Minnesota's 43 and 21. Houston is 45 and 22. And then, of course, the Rays would be the final divisional winner. One of those would be the top seed, and they would await the winner of the Rangers and the Yankees wild card game at Yankee Stadium. So, if the regular season ended right now, the AL playoffs would feature Minnesota, Houston, Tampa Bay, New York, and Texas. 
In the wild card, you've got Cleveland two games out, Boston's two games out, Oakland three, LA and Chicago four, and then it drops off a bit. Seattle nine back, the Tigers nine and a half. Over in the National League, the Dodgers would be the top seed. They have the same record as the Astros, 45 and 22. Three teams all are tied for the highest winning percentage in all of baseball at 672. L.A., Houston, and Minnesota. Just like we all thought. The Brewers would get in as the central champions at 38 and 28 as it stands right now. And then there's a tie for who would win the East, Atlanta or Philadelphia, each of them sitting at 37 and 29. The wild card race? Well, it would be the Cubs and either Atlanta or Philadelphia, whoever doesn't win that division. And by the way, whoever doesn't win that division would have to go on the road, and keep in mind this is all as it stands right now, and play Chicago because Chicago has a better record than both Atlanta and Philadelphia. Second place team in the Central has a better record, better winning percentage than the first place team in the East. Continuing through the NL wildcard, Colorado, Arizona, both two and a half back. St. Louis, they're fading fast. They're four back. They've dipped to 500 at 32 and 32. Padres are four back. They're also at 533 and 33. The Mets are hanging around. They're followed by Washington, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, seven back. Starting to take shape. We're starting to get a look at who's going to be contending and who isn't. I tell you what, I was on here last week and I was talking about the Twins. I'm a Twins fan. I grew up in Northwest Iowa, Minnesota. Minneapolis was the closest major city. That was where I went to ball games. Still love going to ball games there. Am I loving this? Absolutely. I'm loving a season like this because there haven't been many of them. How optimistic am I, though, or how optimistic should the Twins be? The Twins have a bunch of power bats. They're slugging the heck out of the ball. But is that sustainable? I always thought from my years of watching baseball, at some point the bats are going to cool off. And do they have the pitching to be able to make up for that when the bats aren't on? Yeah, they do. Jake Odorizzi's taking a huge step forward, retooling his arsenal. Right now he's got a 1.92 ERA, best in the AL. He's a real Cy Young candidate. And he's not even their number one. So yeah, they've got great pitching, they've got great hitting, they've played great defense. But is it sustainable? Do I see the Twins getting by teams like Houston and New York when it's all said and done? Something worries me. Something worries me. They took the season series against Houston already. They're done playing them. They took four out of seven. The Yankees, they dropped two or three over in New York. They'll still see them when they come to Target Field in the fall. As of right now, as good as the Twins are, I'm not ready to say that they're going to win the AL pennant. From a fundamental standpoint, I don't know what more they can do to convince me. Maybe it's just beating the Yankees. They've always had the Twins number. I don't know why. New York has always been Minnesota's Achilles heel. I think that's why I'm not yet ready to say with all confidence that Minnesota is a World Series team. They're a good team. They're going to be a playoff team. They might even make a run. But until they stop New York, I don't know. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to go all in on them. Now keep in mind, the Yankees are still fighting for their own division. The Rays could very well hang on and win the East. And the Twins played well against the Rays. I don't know what it is. It's a tough matchup with New York. They're a tough matchup for a lot of teams, but they're always a tough matchup for Minnesota, and that's what worries me going forward. Do I think the Twins are good enough to make the World Series? They're capable of it? Yeah, I do. But their inability to beat New York is what gives me pause. I tell you what, I've got a trivia question for you, if you like trivia. It's not a call-in because the phone line's about to be busy because I'm going to have a guest join me here in about a little less than five minutes, but 
I want to give you something just to think about a little bit, and I'll give you the answer at the end of the show if you're not able to come up with it. It will test who's a loyal listener to ESPN Radio, because this was mentioned during the Dan Levitard show on Friday. Thought it was a great trivia question. Who are the only two active players who have turned an unassisted triple play? That's a good one. I didn't know the answer, if it makes you feel better. Only two active players have turned an unassisted triple play. Again, I'd love to make it a calling question. Not going to be able to because I've got somebody join me here in a little less than five minutes. So if you know the answer, I'm proud of you. I tell you what, the oldest alumni softball tournament in the world is coming back to the UP next month. I'm going to have a guest who breaks it down for us next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. We wind down to the 5 o'clock hour on this Tuesday afternoon. Again, if you missed any part of the show, check it out on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. Well, the world's oldest alumni softball tournament is coming back to the UP for a 40th consecutive year. I'm joined by its organizer, Tim Hayes. The Ishpeming Alumni Softball Tournament, the longest running in America, and it's coming back July 2nd through the 4th. Tim, good afternoon. Appreciate you being here. Tell me about how this idea came to you to start an alumni softball tournament. Well, there was a bunch of our friends, and now we were talking we should do something like this for the alumni because, I mean, they had... Periodically, they had alumni basketball tournaments during the winter, and you know a lot of us were wrestlers, and uh, we didn't quite fit into the basketball scene. But uh, um, a lot of us, we started it the first year. We started in 1979. Uh, there was eight teams, and back then, uh, the class of 1962 were the winners, and they won quite a few years after that. Tell me about how you've seen the tournament grow. I mean, you've certainly got a lot more than eight teams in the tournament this year. Yeah, I mean, our, our high peak was, um, I think we had 37 teams uh, one year. Now we're doing a little bit of combining because of the, the way the 4th of July falls sometimes. If it doesn't fall directly on a weekend, then it's hard for some people to get home. But we still have, we probably have about two or 300 alumni that come from all over the country. We've got people that come from Hawaii, California, Washington, Florida, Texas. And they, they just come home for the alumni softball tournament. It's a huge, huge uh, school reunion, and like I said, uh, sometimes down at the playgrounds, we have the lights down there, so we take advantage of our lights, and we play games till one thirty in the morning, and it's it's a really festive time. I mean, everything is pretty well uh, monitored, and um, it's it's uh, it's it's unbelievable how it is. I mean, Nagani started one, uh, I think, probably about twenty years ago or somewhere around there, and. Uh, Westwood followed. They started one about 15 or 16 years ago. But um, it's it's uh, it's a really great time for everybody to get together. Yeah, three-day event that serves somewhat as a class reunion. Tell me about the qualifications needed to be a part of this. Is it simply just being a graduate of Ishpeming High School? Um, well, we what we do is uh, we do incorporate the spouses. For if you're a graduate from Ishpeming High School, um, your spouse is also allowed to play in this. And that, that really makes it kind of cool, too. And this year now, we started a new thing. Uh, Calvi, Champ, Calvi Chapman is a lifelong uh, hematite. I mean, he was, he was a very, very great man, and he, he was dedicated to all hematite sports. Uh, 
male and female. And um, we dedicated just, we're going to have a women's tournament this year with all the classes involved in it. There's three different sets of teams. And just to dedicate to him, and that, that should be something else. And then those girls, I know right now there's a, there's a grandmother, a mother, a daughter, and a great-granddaughter that are going to be playing on the team. So you get, you get stuff like that going. It gets contagious. Uh, we've had before, because uh, we've had large families around here, um, we've had the Bertussis, uh, they formed their own alumni team, and we've had the Delangelos, they formed their own alumni team. So it gets, we do a little bit here and there, and this year is, uh, is dedicated to uh, Teddy Hill, uh, who was a 79 graduate, and, and the other dear friend of mine that, that died tragically, was uh, his name was Justin Karnak. He was the captain of my wrestling team when he was a sophomore, and uh, he would have graduated in, in 19 this year. So we dedicated every year to uh, one of our fallen alumni, and it's... Uh, we have a special moment before the games kick off to dedicate to, to those two. And like I said, uh, Wilderness, uh, Sandy uh, down there at Wilderness, they've been wonderful for the last 40 years. Uh, they they volunteer to give us the game balls. And, and like I said, we we pretty much uh, just have uh, each team is responsible for uh, their own umpires. And um, we it goes from there. Now it, it's unlimited arc. So that, that helps us too in that because you get some of these young moose-type uh, kids that can hit the ball 400 feet, so they struggle with the unlimited arc. Well, Tim, tell me about the gameplay format. I'm curious about some of the tournament rules. Um, any time that there's a, um, there's a play at any base besides first, they have to slide. It's a must-slide rule. Um, we, we check all the bats to make sure that um, they don't have any super-juiced bats, and we don't use super-hard uh, softballs, and we do rotate uh, the girls' softball for the girls and the boys' softball for the boys. And other than that, it's um, it's pretty free-spirited like it, its intention was. Uh, it's more for fun, and um, they enjoy this better than the other part of it. Well, looking at your bracket here, you've got two divisions. you got the blue, you got the white. The blue is for any class prior to 2002. Is that generally how you format your tournament with two different divisions? Um, usually we have uh, blue, white, and silver, but we moved things around a little bit. We uh, adjusted our schedule to uh, to accommodate everybody, and and a lot of times, it, and it's believe it or not, is a lot of the times the older classes uh, find a way to make it into the championship game. So it's uh, um, it's it's kind of thrilling sometimes. And like I said, it's um, um, it's it's pretty exciting and. Uh, and, it, and it's it's really fun, and, and that's the whole thing. We try to keep it as fun as we can, and like I said, the Fourth of July, uh, we play the championship games. We always have out at Alcoal, so and that and that's uh, and that's always a thrill out there because um, the ball carries so well out there in Alcoal. I mean, the kids have hitting the ball. I had, I had a couple friends of mine even. Uh, there was a great hitter. His name was Kirk Cornish, and his back is bad now, but. He used to hit the ball just about 400 feet in the air with the wind out there. We're talking with Tim Hares, the director of the Ishpeming Alumni Softball Tournament, the longest-running alumni softball tournament in America. Tim, when others have tried to start something like this, they've tried and failed, but you've kept this going for four decades. How do you do it? It's um, it's a work ethic. Uh, I, myself, uh, I've been in the Ishpeming school system for quite a few years, coaching and whatnot, so I know all of these kids uh, growing up. 
And they, they have been, a lot of these kids can't wait to graduate just so they can play in this alumni uh, softball tournament. And it's, uh, so it's, it's, and it's, the tradition is carried on forever and it's, it's just phenomenal. Do you get a pretty good turnout? Maybe some spectators come out and take it in? Yes, uh, we we get jammed on there. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, we get at Tots and at, on the 3rd of July usually is our biggest night down there. And, uh, you know, we get coming and going. We get two, 3,000 people down there watching all these games. Is there an admission or anything to get in? No, everything is free of charge. Uh, like I said, it's um, a lot of the grandparents and great-grandparents, uh, um, well, they just live for this because they love seeing all these kids that come back. They have maybe a lot of the parents and grandparents haven't seen some of their kids' friends in 20, 30 years, and they come back, and it's a really special time for them. Um, like I said, last year I lost my uh, good friend last year, George Swanson. He was uh, almost 90 last year, and he was, uh, he's was he been there for every one of them. So, and, you know, and we dedicated for him last year. But um, we, we get a lot of elderly people that like to just come down there and watch these games and, and reminisce, and, and it's really, really a good time. And everybody talks about high school and, and you know, see how everybody's doing, and it really is beautiful. Well, Tim, tell me where the tournament's going to be held. You mentioned Alquil. Tell me about some of the fields that you're going to be implementing. Um, the whole tournament uh, is held at um, four different locations. It's, it's held at the, the Ispering Playgrounds. Um, at the fast pitch field and the, and the slow pitch field, and then we use uh, alcohol rec area, and then we use the Mather A field. So we, we're split up in about four or five different fields that we use. Well, Tim, you certainly learn things doing something like this for 40 years. What's one of the biggest things that it's taught you? Well, it's um, the biggest thing is I respect um, all of these kids that come back. Um, it's, it's the word respect when they're young, when they come out, and they get respect for everybody, and, and it grows, and it's a, it's a teaching, uh, it's a teaching, uh, learning process, these kids, uh, you know, they, they learn to respect, and when they get a little bit older, then they understand, uh, maybe why we were so hard on them for, for doing this or that, but it's, um, it's, like I said, it's, uh, it's unbelievable the amount of people that come back here for, for this. Tim, is there any favorite memory doing this for almost 40 years now that you can point to? Um, the favorite one probably is when I, I got to pour, uh, pour a bucket of water over um, Mike Ludlum's head. So. <laughs> I tell you what. That and is... that, was, that was probably like 30 years ago. <laughs> got to get Luds back out there, recreate it. Well, we'll see if we can get him to be that way. I mean, I, I even had him in a, in a wrestling thing one time, and... Uh, he wrestled Zach Goth here in the Spring Wrestling Practice Room, so that was that was uh, quite epic also. I tell you what, the 40th Annual Ishpeming High School Alumni Softball Tournament coming up July 2nd through the 4th. Talking with Tim Hares, he is the organizer, has been for the last 40 years. Tim, appreciate you taking the time. Looking forward to seeing how the tournament pans out. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Tim Harris, once again, the Ishpeming Alumni Softball Tournament organizer. He's been doing this for four decades. That's amazing. Would love to go see what that's like. Never seen anything like that, especially not that big. 
Well, I tell you what, a few news and notes for you before we sign off. They did get back to action over in Paris. I'm talking Women's World Cup soccer. Sweden turned it on and they beat Chile 2-0 after the weather delay. The U.S. dominating Thailand early on. The Yankees, the only major league game in progress. They've broken it open and they're beating their rivals from across town in the Subway Series. They're thumping the Mets. They will play game two of a doubleheader later this evening. Tell you what, a few more news and notes in case you missed it before I give you the answer to our trivia question. Once again, who are the only two active Major League Baseball players who have turned an unassisted triple play throughout their career? Can think about that while I give you this. The Saints have signed Cameron Jordan, star defensive end, to a three-year, $52.5 million extension. That includes $42 million guaranteed, according to Adam Schefter. New York Giants head coach Pat Shermer is hinting at a quarterback battle. I don't know if he's being coy, but he says the Giants will play, quote, the very best player at quarterback this fall. Of course, the Giants drafted Daniel Jones out of Duke, sixth overall. There's just no way that he's going to take it from Eli Manning, is there? That's literally what got Ben McAdoo fired, as he tried to put somebody else in the quarterback spot over Eli Manning. If he did that now, he wouldn't get fired. A lot of people feel they owe Ben McAdoo an apology. Forbes has released their annual list of the highest paid athletes in the world. No surprise, a soccer player once again tops a list, Lionel Messi. He was second last year behind Floyd Mayweather. Now he's taken over the money team, man. In fact, Mayweather's fallen down the list. Cristiano Ronaldo second with $109 million in total earning. Rounding out the top ten, Neymar, then Canelo Alvarez, Roger Federer, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, LeBron James, Stephen Curry, and Kevin Durant. A new report says that Anthony Davis is focused on the Lakers and the Knicks as his preferred destinations. He's got a New York state of mind, or he'd like to go out and join LeBron. Zion Williamson will have his first meeting with the New Orleans Pelicans later this week. Presumably that's who he's going to get drafted by, number one overall here in just about two weeks. Boston Bruins defenseman Brandon Carlo says that a mistake made by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch earlier this week anointing the Blues as Stanley Cup champions prematurely, quote, lit a fire in us, in the Bruins. In case you missed that, on Sunday, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch released a graphic in their newspaper congratulating the Blues on their Cup championship. Only problem was they hadn't won the Cup yet. In fact, they went on to lose that night. Now they have a winner-take-all Game 7 on Wednesday. Well, I tell you what, folks, just about down to the 5 o'clock hour, it's about time for me to get up on out of here. Let me give you the answer to that trivia question first. Again, the only two active players in Major League Baseball who have turned an unassisted triple play. Neither did it with the team that they're currently on. Troy Tulowitzki, currently a Yankee, he did so with Colorado. And Asdrubal Cabrera, when he was with Cleveland. Surprised me to find out as Drupal Cabrera is still playing Major League Baseball. He's with Texas. Well, I tell you what, that is going to do it for today's show. You know what I'm going to say? As always, you can get the show on demand. Listen to me anytime you want. Get it from the Apple iStore, Google Play, look up ESPNUP. A lot you can get with that app. Unlocks a lot of doors for you. I'm going to be back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central, right here on ESPN-UP, online with our app. Be sure to join me. I'll be joined by John Michael Hofling, Sports Director at ABC10. Signing off from the ESPN-UP WZAM studios, my name's Tanner Hoops. I'll talk at you Tanamaniacs tomorrow.